Good afternoon, everybody, and thank you for that special music. We are now only about five weeks away from the Feast of Tabernacles, and this is our furthest annual pilgrimage for one of God's festivals. No doubt, excitement and anticipation is mounting for you and your loved ones. But have you ever wondered what must it have been like for the ancient Israelites? Do we have any information on record that, of what they may have thought and felt? And indeed, the Bible does give us some glimpses of how they felt. And today we're going to look into one of these records. In fact, it's within the lyrics of a song, a psalm of our Bible. This sermon is going to be an exposition of this psalm. Over the past several years, I've been delivering a series of sermons on individual psalms. And what I've done, I've told the stories behind these psalms that we often sing in our own hymnals. Today's psalm is just such a one. Please take your hymnal. Well, that threw you off, didn't it? And turn to page 53. We're not used to turning to the hymnal when we have a sermon. But I want you to look at something first. Page 53 is entitled, How Lovely Are Thy Dwellings. And the lyrics that Dr. Er, Mr. Dwight Armstrong included in our version of the hymn go like this. How lovely are thy dwellings, O eternal Lord of hosts! My soul is longing, fainting for you, O living God. Yea, the bird has found its home, built a nest to lay her young. Oh, that I may find thine altars, my Lord, my King, and my God. And it goes on to describe other experiences that this person had in God's presence. I want you to look on the upper left and notice where that came from. That's from Psalm 84. And that's our psalm for today. Psalm 84. The title of this sermon is How Lovely Are Thy Dwellings. How lovely are thy dwellings. And in this study, we're going to see our necessary frame of mind when we gather at the feast, when we go to the feast, when we are there at the feast, and when we leave the feast. Because the psalm is divided in three pieces that describe past, present, and future. The Bible is not just a book. It's a relationship in words. It's a divine human dialogue. We know God speaks to us, and the Psalms do that. But the Psalms also show that we can talk to God, that the authors are expressing their feelings back to God in Him. This is the essence of our relationship with God. The Psalms express the full range of the states of a human heart. They show the highest joy and the deepest sorrow. And along with Isaiah, it is the most often quoted book in our New Testament. Jesus quoted more often from Psalms and Isaiah than any other books of our Hebrew Bible. In no other book of the Bible can you find such variety of religious experience. Here the hearts of God's worshipers are laid bare. There's a timelessness behind these lyrics, that's why we sing them yet today, that makes this book equally applicable to every age in history. There are psalms for every mood, for every need that the worshiper of God might have. Now, the psalms, as we have them in our Bible, are in the third section of the Hebrew Bible, called it. Ketuvim, the third section, sometimes called the writings. And in Luke, Jesus referred to them as the Psalms because the Psalms introduced this third division. 
But there are 150 of these that make up an anthology. And together, the collection is called the Psalter, from a Latin term, Psalterium. The Book of Psalms is the hymnal of the Bible. This anthology of hymns and prayers to God. Two basic types, hymns of praise and prayers. The authors are praying to God. And so we have the lyrics of Israel's hymn book in our book of Psalms. We have modern music today from Mr. Dwight Armstrong. So the Psalter is a collection of hymns used in the temple worship. The word Psalms, Greek, from the Greek psalmos, comes from the Septuagint Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew title was Tehillim, meaning praises or songs of praise. And many of them are prayers of the human composers. In the traditional Jewish classification, the Psalms were divided into five books, each ending with a doxology, as it's called, a detailed hymn of praise, and was considered a counterpart to the five books of Moses. And it's assumed by many scholars that each passage of the Pentateuch was read in conjunction with its corresponding psalm. Now, a later classification suggests the psalms were used in the temple, especially at the three great pilgrimage feasts, Passover and Unleavened Bread, Feast of Weeks, and Feast of Tabernacles. And the theme of kingship, kingship, is prominent in the Psalms for the Feast of Tabernacles, as we will discover later today in Psalm 84. Now, how do we understand these Psalms today? One of the things impeding our understanding of the Psalms is our modern individualism that assumes that worship is strictly a private affair between a person and God, just personal piety is all that counts, that God is accessible apart from established means of public worship in a community, in a group. This idea has infiltrated the Church of God in modern times. But that concept was completely alien to Israel's covenant faith, according to which an individual relates to God as a member of a community, a body of people. And those who want to have access to him are part of that group that collectively speak to him and worship him and gather together in unison. And as a member of this community, the person shares in the promises and the obligations of that covenant. Being a solitary individual in the Hebraic way of thinking was the greatest calamity imaginable because God was present when his congregation gathered together to worship on his appointed Sabbath and holy days. Some background to Psalm 84 first. Psalm 84 has been called the Pearl of the Psalms. At least that's what the famous British Baptist minister Charles Spurgeon called it. And it really is an outstanding psalm. It's a pilgrim psalm. It's one of the psalms that people would sing as they were traveling on their way to Jerusalem to worship God. And it's also one of the Psalms of Zion. Zion. These Psalms of Zion celebrated God's presence in Jerusalem where his temple was located from the time of Solomon on. And like the other songs of Zion, there's about eight of these in our Psalter. These Psalms showed that people there were in touch with their God. Zion was the place of God's presence, as we will see in a few minutes, among his people. And so it probably originated, this collection, with the pilgrims' experience that we're going up to Zion. We're going up to worship our great God. Because the temple was, figuratively speaking, God's house. It's where he met with his people. We know God could not be confined to a building or a box in a building. But people realized, as Solomon had did in the dedicatory prayer that this is where God's people met with God. So let's go to the book of Exodus chapter 23. 
Exodus 23, starting in verse 14. <clears throat> Exodus 23, starting in verse 14. God told Israel through Moses, Three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. Do you notice that? Three times. Because these were three times they gathered, three seasons in that year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Verse 15. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded you, etc. Verse 16. The second one, feast of harvest. <coughs> Today we call it Pentecost. The first fruits of your labors which you have sown in the field. And then the third one, the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you've gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. Three times in the year all your males shall appear before the Lord God. It's interesting that even the word for feast in the Hebrew, Hag, means pilgrim feast or pilgrimage. People had to move. They had to travel to go there. The Arabic word Hajj is derived from this Hebrew word to describe the Islamic pilgrimage to Mecca. Psalm 122, verse 1. Psalm 122 and verse 1. And this is the way the people felt when it was time to prepare for traveling to Jerusalem for one of these three feasts. Psalm 122, starting in verse 1. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Verse 3, Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together, where the tribes go up, the tribes of the eternal, to the testimony of the Lord, the symbol of divine presence, to give thanks to the name of the eternal. For thrones are set there for judgment, and thrones the thrones of the house of David. Now, verse 1 sounds familiar. You might recognize it because they're the opening lyrics of Sir Hubert Perry's anthem from 1902 used in British coronations. I was glad when they said unto me. Psalm 84 has a Levitical emphasis. In fact, Psalm 84 is in book 3 of the five books that matches Leviticus. It's a prayer for longing for God's house. The tone and perspective are very similar to a companion psalm, Psalm 42, we'll look at later. It may even involve similar circumstances. Perhaps written by a Levite, Psalm 84 that is, when he was deprived of going up to Jerusalem, maybe in the time when Sennacherib ravaged Judah. We just don't know for sure. But there's a longing in Psalm 84 to go there. As we'll see. So in Psalm 84, there are three major parts. Verses 1 to 4 describes the hope of that pilgrim for going up to Jerusalem. The longing to be there. Longing to be in God's presence with his people. Verses 5 and 7 is the second part where we read about the pilgrim's experience. The journey on the way there. So it begins with longing, then you have the journey, even through difficulties, as we'll see, to get there. In the third division, verses 8 to 11, the pilgrim's prayer. In other words, he is there now, he's enjoyed the feast, and he's going home. And he's taking that experience with him. And verse 12 serves as a fitting conclusion. Only 12 verses, and we're going to study them verse by verse. So let's go to Psalm 84. And I want you to put a marker in Psalm 84. This is going to be our home base. We will go elsewhere. We're going to look at this piece by piece. So what's the connection with the Feast of Tabernacles in this psalm? When I began looking at this, I did not know the direct connection until I did some research. And there it was all the time. Psalm 84. Now, I want you to look 
at their words right below Psalm 84. To the chief musician, on an instrument of Gath, the psalm of the sons of Korah. This is called a superscription. That which is written above, verse 1. Superscription. But in the Jewish Bible, it actually is verse 1. To the chief musician, probably a liturgical notation used in the collection of the works sung by a choir during a temple worship or spoken by the leader of the Levitical choir, even by the choir itself. Because the Levites represented God's people. And the people then would follow up these words with Amen or Hallelujah, praise you the eternal. Now I want you to look at the words of Gath, an instrument of Gath. And if you look in the margin, you'll see this. The margin of the New King James, all teeth, all teeth. interesting word. And we could read right over it and not recognize the connection. It's uncertain as to its exact meaning, but it seems to have something to do either with a musical style or instrument, perhaps from Gath, the Philistine city, or as it's related to another word used a number of times in our Old Testament, to the vintage, the wine press, the wine press, the vintage. And there we have some clues. Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew Lexicon describes it this way. It says it could be a musical instrument, maybe from Gath, question mark, but it's used in the titles of three of our psalms. Three psalms. Psalms 8, Psalm 81, Psalm 84. And here's what these three scholars say. A song title used for the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths. Dr. Bollinger's Companion Bible, Appendix 65, has an interesting appendix in which he goes into this word. He says there are three psalms that have this superscription. And there's no doubt that Gatith means wine presses. The word speaks of the autumn, just as Shoshanim speaks of the spring. Shoshanim, flowers for the spring festival. But Gitoth, or Gatith from Gatoth, meaning fruit, is associated with the Autumn Feast Festival of Tabernacles. The Passover, he said, told of God's goodness and divine redemption. But the Feast of Tabernacles told of God's goodness and divine keeping. Gatith. And so it may then refer to a vintage melody. That is, at the end of the harvest season when the vintage was brought in. In the autumn, around the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's called a psalm. A psalm of the sons of Korah. Here in our superscription. Hebrew word mizmor. Forty-four times it occurs throughout the psalms. And it means invariably a psalm. But in particular, this word compared to another word for song. This word has reference to meditation. It's one of those psalms you dwell on, you think about. You meditate. And so well, let's meditate about this hymn as we go through it today. And then it says it's a psalm for the sons of Korah. You see, Korah's children escaped the punishment inflicted on their father's rebellion. Numbers 26.11 says the children of Korah died not. And their descendants became prominent in the temple worship. From them came Samuel and Heman. In fact, two groups of psalms are associated with these sons of Korah. Psalms 42 to 49, and then 84 to 88. So they were leaders in the temple worship. They formed a Levitical choir made up of descendants of Korah, appointed by David to serve in the temple ceremony and worship service. They were descended from Kohath, son of Levi. And in David's day, their leader was Himon. The sons of Korah, we have 11 such titles throughout our Psalms. 11 of these in the collection. Well, Psalm 84 is a companion to Psalm 42, but 42 
is a song of lament. But this one, the song of joy. Expressing the deepest sentiments of that person of God when reunited with God's people to worship the one true God. People with whom he has been separated for a time. Describes this joyful reunion of God's people. So leave your marker there as we go into verse by verse. First, Psalms 1 to 4. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the eternal. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home. And the swallow is a nest. The swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They shall still be praising you. This is part one of that three-part division of the psalm. The pilgrim's hope, a longing to be there, a longing of being reunited with God's people. Let's look into certain words here. First of all, in verse one, the word lovely, yadid, not just beautiful, but beloved. And in the Hebrew, it has two senses, beloved and worthy of love. How worthy of love, how beloved is God's tabernacle where people would gather to worship him. And so the, the authors describing the beauty and maybe from a distance as they're getting close to Jerusalem going up the hills, they could see that temple gleaming. And that would be his first reaction. The marvelous beauty. How lovely are your dwelling places, as the margin says. So after verses 1 and 2, where he is impressed by its magnificence, and then verses 3 and 4, he's assured of its safety. And he'll even bring in one of God's creatures to describe that safety there. The word tabernacle in our New King James is actually plural, as it is in the New King James, or as the King James, Mishkan, dwelling places, as the margin of our New King James says. And it was a poetic term to describe this temple. This plural described maybe the different places where the previous tabernacle had been, from the time of Moses to the building of the temple. Or different rooms that comprise the Solomonic temple. Or it could be plural to describe degree or quality. That it was a special place, a unique place on earth. The tabernacle, Mishkan. From Shakan to dwell or habitation. It's where God dwelt with his people. And they, the Jews then began to use the word Shekinah to describe God's glory. There in the Holy of Holies, the pillar of the cloud, the pillar of the fire. Let's go to Exodus 25, verse 8. You see, when God gave instructions to Moses to build that tabernacle, what was its purpose? Was it merely to go through the ritual of animal sacrifice, special dress, Special details about how the tabernacle should be built. Is that his purpose? Let's go to Exodus 25, verse 8. God says to Moses, Let them make me a sanctuary, the margin, sacred place, that I may dwell among them. God has always wanted to dwell among his people. And so this was to be the earthly headquarters where people were reminded God dwells with us. Not just in a building, but it's a reminder that he is here with us. We are God's people that they were to carry with them even beyond the three festivals, the pilgrimage festivals. And so people would go up to Jerusalem with a special frame of mind. Dr. Scott Winnell gave us a sermonette some weeks ago in which he asked us to prepare spiritually for the feast. And he gave us three points. Begin now doing focused Bible study on the meaning of each of these autumn festivals. Review our church literature. And review past 
Holy Day sermons. We have quite a collection in our church libraries and, of course, online. All right, Psalm 84, verses, verse 2 now. Psalm 84, 2. My soul longs, yea, even faints for the courts of the eternal. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. That is, I myself, me, my innermost being, faints, longs, it faints. In a sense, it's like a homesickness. He can't wait to get back and be reunited. My soul longs and faints. Look at this over, leave your marker there, and go to Psalm 42, the companion psalm. It's expressed this way, very graphically. Psalms are full of graphic detail like this. So you get a picture in your mind of something that could be abstract. Psalm 42, verse 1. As a deer pants, longs for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? You see a longing? How long before we go? How long before we're there? I'm longing like a deer that's not drunk water for a long time. And the psalmist used that present tense to express this recollecting of past experiences. And doesn't Jesus tell us, John 6, to eat and drink of him? My soul longs, faints, pants for your presence. So back to Psalm 84, verse 2. For the courts of the eternal, I long for the courts of the eternal. The outer courts of the temple complex. As we go through the psalm, notice the movement from the outer courts in towards the holy place. So there's movement. In tabernacles, and courts are plural. The way it's expressed in Hebrew, sometimes this is poetic diction. And then he says, my heart and my flesh cry out for God to express his whole being, the totality of his being. How is heart used in the Bible? We often think of it as effect, uh, associated with love. And we have a heart symbol. It's very popular Valentine's Day. But in the Hebrew, the heart was the center of the human spirit from which springs emotions, thought, motivations, courage, action. Proverbs describe it as the issues of life. It's the very heart of the matter. Jesus told us that from the heart, the mouth speaks. It's who we are. That heart represents us, who we really are. And so my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God, as distinguished from dead idols, which is the way they describe the idols of the heathen nations around them. They're nothing. They're dead. They're lifeless. But we serve the living God. Just like Psalm 42, verse 2, we read a minute ago. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And the living God is used many times in our New Testament to describe God. Living, as opposed, uh, as opposed to dead idols. And then he says, in verse 2, My flesh cry out. The sense of that Hebrew is to sing for joy. Sing for joy. For the living God. And that was expressed in him singing. In one way. And now verse 3. Even a sparrow has found a home. And a swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts. My King and my God. Sparrow and swallow are two of about 50 different birds mentioned in Scripture. And so the psalmist is a little bit jealous, perhaps, that these small birds have unhindered access to the temple and even have built nests there where they live in peace. 
When I was a kid, I saw the movie Birdman of Alcatraz, starring Burt Lancaster. How many of you remember that old black and white? The young people have no idea what I'm talking about. But Lancaster played Robert Stroud, who had been given a life sentence. And while in prison, it's a true story, he becomes a world-famous ornithologist, student of birds, and writes books on it. So ever since then, I've had a fascination with birds. And around our house, we put up bird feeders this year. Seed and juice for hummingbirds. A few weeks ago, I opened my garage and I cut my grass. And then I was wheeling my lawnmower back in the garage and lowered the garage door. And then I looked up at the ceiling and there was a hummingbird trapped in my garage. So I opened the door again. And he kept going around and around and around and around. He would go over the door, but he couldn't get out. And he would come back in. And he kept chirping, chirping, chirping. Finally, he got so tired, he landed on the little cord that hangs down from the door opener. And I was right below him. And I looked at him. And I said, hello. And that went like this. And he left. He went right out. Now, the next day, I opened the blinds of my kitchen Right outside our window was this hummingbird feeder. And it was a bird feeding. And when he spied me, he came up to the window. And I wanted to think it was him. <laughs> that he had come back to say, thanks for showing me the way. <laughs> but you see, we dwell among these creatures of God. And the birds need to have safety. Bad things happen in the wildlife, but when they have a safe place to raise their young, it's a, it's a marvel to watch the whole process. And so the psalmist is saying, I'm homesick. I'm somewhat jealous of these birds that can live there all the time. Around your altars, verse 3, even your altars, the altar of Burn offering, now we've gone past the threshold, in the golden altar of incense. He's on his way in, like a Levite. So, how can we afford to appear before our God, our King, and our God? This psalm describes a man who has been given certainty by following God's ways. Let's go on to verse 4 now. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. Blessed are those who dwell in thy house. And I want you to notice the word blessed occurs three times in this psalm. Again in verse 5 and then in verse 12. It's a happy condition of those who revere God, do His will, trust Him, and are blessed by Him. The same words used in Psalm 1 to begin the whole Psalter. Because true happiness involves constantly seeking God, trusting Him at all times. And we've had recent sermons right here the past few weeks about seeking God and trusting God. That brings blessing, according to the psalmist. The word rendered blessed in these Beatitudes, because that's what the Beatitudes are, Esher describes happiness. Oh, the happiness. Oh, how happy are these people. It occurs 26 times in our book of Psalms, 19 times rendered blessed, happy seven times. But it describes the happiness of God's people, knowing they've done it right, and they're there in God's presence. Happy are those who dwell... In your house. Here in verse 4. Dwell in God's house. Not just as Levites or priests who perhaps live there all year, but now God's guests, God's worshipers who've come from all over Israel. 
for this special occasion. Leave your marker there. I want you to turn to a passage to answer the question, where is God's house today? 2 Corinthians 6. 2 Corinthians 6. Where is God's temple today? 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16. Paul writes, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you, you, the church of God, are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them. Walk among them, be their God, and they shall be my people. And therefore, come out from among them and be you separate, says the eternal. Don't touch the unclean, and I'll receive you. I'll be a father to you, and you'll be my sons and my daughters, says the Lord Almighty. You see, wherever God's people assemble, that's where God's temple is. Because we comprise collectively God's temple today. We don't have to go to one center like they did in Jerusalem. Today our feast sites are all over the world. But wherever those people gather, God is present. He's dwelling with His people. So back to Psalm 84, verse 4. They will still be praising you. Now in the temple of David and Solomon, they had singers who were free from all other duties and were employed just to sing hymns. Not only on the Sabbath and holidays, but through the week as well. And then this peculiar word, Selah, at the end of verse 4. Seventy-one times it occurs in our book of Psalms, uncertain. Does it mean a pause in the reading? Does it mean an interlude for string instruments, a change in melody, a change in emphasis? We don't know for sure, but it's a curious word. Now let's go on to part 2, verses 5 to 7. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. And so this describes the journey to get there. The first four verses was the longing to be there. Now the journey, blessed, second of the three blessings, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. See, God is in their hearts. That's why they go. They go because it's a sacred festival. It's not a a vacation like other occasions of the year. We're on a journey. We're on a journey to worship our God. And so these people draw their strength from God, which gives them courage on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Blessed is the man, now, Adam in the Hebrew is generic in this sense, male or female. Blessed is that person whose strength is in you, who know God as deliverer, sustainer, in whose, whose heart is set on pilgrimage, who purposed in their heart to travel the highways that these people took to observe the feasts. Interesting word, this word pilgrimage. Mezilah literally means highways or ascents. They were going up topographically up to Jerusalem. But not out of obligation, but because they wanted to. It was a wellspring of joy that led to this sanctuary, a sense of anticipation, perpetual journey. The Jewish Translation of 1917 says, In whose heart are the highways? That the journey itself built on this anticipation. It was something special to be part of. And so the purpose of this pilgrimage was to visit and worship at the place where God manifested himself in the past and could be expected to do so again in the future. Because there... 
people held sacred tradition in memory of past feasts. There was spiritual renewal and fellowship that reconnected these people together. Now, in ancient Israel history, other centers had been gathering places, Bethel, Gilgal, Beersheba, but eventually Jerusalem became the only legitimate place for such a gathering. In 2012, at the Feast of Tabernacles, I gave a sermon called Sacred Ground, in which I went into that in more detail. And that sermon is still on our website. But after the captivity, pilgrimage to Jerusalem, after the captivities of both House of Israel and Judah, the idea for an Israelite to go to Jerusalem even once became a sacred dream and obligation for Jews who lived in the, the diaspora outside Judea. In fact, we have examples of that in our New Testament where Jesus' parents came up every year for the Passover. And then the book of Acts, too, recounts how Jews came from all over the Roman world to keep Pentecost. It was a dream and an obligation. Verse 6. And as they passed through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before his God. Hebrew word for baka, baka, uncertain meaning, but seems to have something to do with weeping or balsam or mulberry trees, but describing these waterless valleys, difficult terrain to get across, desolate places. You see, it came to represent the difficulties people had to get there on the journey. But that did not deter them, nor did it spoil the feast for them. In fact, as verse 6 goes on to say, instead they make it a spring, a place of refreshment. You see, there was a gladness and a comfort that made things better for these people. Difficulties getting there did not ruin their feast and only made getting there that much more enjoyable because it was like the rain that covers it with pools now the rains would come in the early winter and so this again implies that they're traveling prior to winter feast of tabernacles time just before the beginning of the rainy season and so this veil of weeping was turned into a valley of praise with these, just like pools of water that would come with the rains that would enable blessing, flowers, and plants would begin to grow again, grass would turn green. Again, it's speaking symbolically of how even their difficulties were turned into joys because they knew their purpose. Each one, verse 7, appears before their God. They go from strength to strength as if there's no lasting fatigue. Yeah, it was hard, but it didn't turn them back. They kept pressing on. And each of these difficulties added vitality to the next phase of their journey. You know, when we go to the feast, things sometimes go wrong. We could have car trouble, cancellation of reservations, bad weather, all kinds of things can happen to God's people. We have to remember these verses, that these people focused on their end. To get there, to turn the valley of Baca into a valley of Barakah, blessing. In the Chronicles, it says, on the fourth day, this one passage, they assembled at the valley of Barakah, for there they blessed the Lord, and therefore the name of that place was called the valley of Barakah until this day. See, turning a valley of harshness into a valley of blessing. So verse 7, each one appears before God in Zion. Zion. There's a heavenly Zion where God dwells in the third heaven. But there in Jerusalem was an earthly Zion. His presence there among his people. And today, that is God's people. 
who have his spirit, where they gather together. Part 3, verses 8 to 11. O Lord of hosts, Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And here is the pilgrim's prayer that they take home with them. While they're there, they know that they're in God's presence. They're in the company of this, the Lord of hosts, the God of armies. The God is supreme. He's sovereign. He's transcendent above all the things that he has made. O eternal of hosts, hear my prayer, give ear. O God of Jacob, not God of Israel. Do you wonder why that is phrased that way? You see, Jacob came to represent Jacob before he got into a fully right relationship with God. Because when he did, God gave him a new name, Israel. But here is the God of Jacob because it describes God's grace. That as he worked with this man Jacob, who deserved nothing but wrath, and turned him into his servant, so that God is the God that we worship in a covenant relationship. Verse 9. O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. Interesting word, this word for shield. Magain in Hebrew. It came to represent the king in Jerusalem. And so it was natural to pray for the king, the leader of the nation, because the continuance of the temple depended on the king and the stability of his government. For you and me, we have the ultimate king in Jesus Christ, who was unchanged in his priestly kingship because he guarantees our security, our acceptance, our blessing. When you read in the Psalms, numerous sets of these Psalms deal with kingship. Many Psalms about divine kingship were used and sung at the Feast of Tabernacles because the feast was especially a covenant festival where God's people renewed their relationship with him who was their king. And on earth he had a human representative, someone from the family of David. Now look at that verse 8 again, verse 9 again. O God, behold our shield. The King James rewords it. Behold, O God, our shield. When you go to Psalm 89, verse 18, Psalm 89, 18, shield came to represent God himself. Psalm 89, verse 18. For our shield belongs to the eternal, and our king to the Holy One of Israel. Not only did he have a human representative, David, and his sons, who were the shield of Israel, but God himself was this shield, their defender. It came to represent a title for Messiah himself, a messianic symbol, our shield. Remember what God said to Abram back in Genesis? I am your shield, Abram, your exceeding great reward. I am your shield. Let me encourage you to do a study on shield in the Bible. And you'll find some very interesting little side studies. We have the shield of faith spoken of in Paul's writings. The shield was used to describe God's favor, God's salvation. There are verses for all these. And God's truth. And in favor 
You have subdivisions of life and mercy and preservation, security, remembrance and salvation. All this wrapped up in one word. So, make a side study. Let me encourage you to do that. I think you'll find a very profitable Bible study by doing so. So, verse 9. Behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. Mashiach, God's earthly regent over his people from David's line or sometimes used for the high priest. And both were offices that Christ employs. He's the priest king. Mashiach, the Messiah. And so verse 9, look upon the face of your anointed. Verse 10 now. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God and dwell in the tents of wickedness. This is the essential mood of the psalm. A day in God's court is better than a thousand. No, it's better than being anywhere else. Nothing in the pilgrim's daily experience can be compared to this day spent in God's presence. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness of all the people that did not worship God. I'd rather be a doorkeeper at the threshold. That may have been the very part of the duties of the Korites, porters, gatekeepers. But in any case, it was considered the lowliest of the many duties right there at the temple. Seemingly insignificant. That's why it's used in this comparative sense. I would rather be an insignificant nobody here than I would some prominent person in the world. The world that doesn't know God. The world of wickedness and lawlessness. And so here's a contrast displayed between God's people and those who are not. Mr. Rod McNair, in a July-August issue of the Living Church News, wrote, Be a light at the feast. In his article, he says, It's a golden opportunity to shine the light of this type of example for each other and for non-members that we interact with. Because we're representing the millennial reign of Christ. Our goal is to show that God's law can be applied now. So he goes through some ways we can show that light when we go to the feast. Patience with the hotel staff, like when we make a reservation. Courtesy during meetings. Turn off our phones. Don't reserve more seats than we need. Don't sit in special seating, etc. Little ways of consideration. Taking care of the hall, leaving it in a better condition than when we arrived. Care and supervision of children, monitoring them so they're not endangering others like the elderly. If you're sick, don't come and share your disease, your disease with us. If it's contagious, stay home for those days until you recover. Appropriate entertainment during the feast. Appropriate where during services and at the beach we have announcements coming out no doubt about all this and he quotes a survey done among CEOs and this is what they noticed in this survey how others treat the waiter is like a magical window into the soul a person who is nice to you but rude to the waiter or to others is not a nice person Courtesy to those of service during the feast. The way that light can shine. Verse 11, Psalm 84. For the eternal God is a sun and a shield. Eternal will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Did you notice that? The eternal God is described as a sun and a shield. The sun, the source of light. And life, in fact, a psalm of David, begins that way. The eternal was my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? 
The word for sun here, Shemesh, describes that ball of flame up on our sky, that source of life and growth and harvest. And this is the only occurrence in the Psalms where it becomes a symbol for God in these ways, the source of life and growth and harvest. It's rarely used of the God of the Bible in the Old Testament, but it was a well-attested royal title in the ancient Near East. It was used for kings, the sun. And as we know, many peoples worship the sun or the moon or stars, all created things, whereas we are to worship the creator. Even in Malachi, Son of righteousness was a term used to describe Messiah. And so we don't worship what he has made. We worship God himself, who becomes that source of life and growth and development. He is our shield, we read in verse 11. Shield, a protector. The king was a shield. It's a common concept in ancient Israel that God is our shield behind the king, behind his human reason. And so he is our sun and shield, splendid shield. He is our grace and glory. Verse 11, glorious grace. And that's what Peter says to us when he writes in his second epistle, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to glory and virtue, that we might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. The Lord God is both provision and protection, giving glory and grace by the strength that he offers us, power and sustenance as our shield, our protection. And he goes on to say in verse 11, No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. See, there's a condition. Walking uprightly. O Lord, who may dwell in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly. The Psalm of David says in Psalm 15, No good thing will he withhold. In other words, every good thing he will offer them. And now our conclusion, verse 12. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Here's the sum of the matter. The conclusion of the whole psalm. Blessed is the third and last blessing of the psalm. Blessed is the man, generic, the person who trusts in you, places that person's confidence in God. There are seven different Hebrew words translated trust. 155 times they occur in our Old Testament. And trust is the idea behind our New Testament word, believe. And when we believe, we're showing trust in the Almighty, as we've heard in recent sermons. And so these Concluding words are far beyond the jubilation of the travel, the journey, the arrival. This describes the permanent stability and the spiritual resources of people who go back home with that experience as part of their memory. Trusting God becomes just as much a direct experience of God at that temple as it is back home. Because God is dwelling with them in their recollections, in their memories. So, brethren, this is what we take home from the feast. O eternal of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. That's why we go to the feast. To bring something back until the next time we gather together. Like we do with the feast. <clears throat> and so there we have it. Psalm 84, the psalm that tells us about longing for the feast, the experience of the feast, and what we take home from the feast. You see, the key to a successful festival season 
is having this right spirit, like the author of this psalm, one that is reverent, worshipful, concentrated, unselfish, but focused. These festivals depict events in God's plan much greater than we ourselves. And we've given our lives to him and to that whole plan of God. And so it's, the time, it's time for us to detach ourselves from the world and bring ourselves mentally, spiritually, into harmony with God and his way. And when we do, we will gladly sing, How lovely are thy dwellings.